This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes related to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, Rod Davis. This is episode 39. And this week, we are looking at philanthropy and empathy. So probably the starting point here is to say what we actually mean by empathy. So going, uh, reaching straight away for the Oxford English Dictionary here. Empathy is defined there as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Um, and a, an important distinction uh, to make up front is between empathy and sympathy. So sympathy, um, as opposed to empathy, means feelings of pity and sorrow for someone else's misfortune. And the crucial distinction is empathy relies on you literally being able to kind of put yourself in the place of another, whereas sympathy doesn't require that. So, for example, I was able to sympathise with my wife's pain during childbirth, but I couldn't uh, actually empathise with it um, because I have never uh, actually had the same sensation and as it currently stands could not Um, and that distinction will be important as we'll see um, in a minute. So empathy plays an important role in philanthropy um, not always an unproblematic or entirely positive one again as we'll, we'll see in a moment Um, But what I want to do in this episode is sort of dig into some of the ways that empathy uh, shapes our approaches to giving, uh, some of the kind of examples we've seen throughout history of the way in which that has worked out well or not. Uh, And as ever, uh, in the final section, I'd like to look um, a bit more speculatively at what the future might bring. So in the first section, what I want to do is uh, take a bit of a look at what science uh, and kind of research tells us about the role that empathy plays in uh, shaping generosity and giving. Um, we've talked before, uh, a while ago now, I think, on the podcast um, about the kind of the question of altruism and uh, selfless behaviour and why this uh, is kind of a, a big issue in uh, evolutionary biology and economics largely because it presents a huge problem. Um, With the current sort of explanatory frameworks in those sciences, um, or certainly, you know, in evolutionary biology, this was true a while ago, it was very difficult to explain why agents or individuals would actually put themselves at a disadvantage by helping others for no sort of perceived gain of their own. you know, classical economics relies on the idea of rational uh, economic units and kind of self-interested uh, agents who are trying to maximise their own utility. And it didn't really make sense for people to go around acting altruistically or giving things away. Um, and in both of those cases, essentially um, what happened um, as a sort of part of the process of trying to explain altruistic behaviour was that they came up with explanatory mechanisms that sort of turned seemingly selfless behaviour back into selfish behaviour and then everything was fine. So in the case of evolutionary biology, there was the idea of kin selection, which sort of said that any seemingly um, uh, altruistic act on the part of an organism was actually part of a kind of 
wider selfish act when you understood that kind of doing things for others who shared a sufficient uh, level of your genetic material was in the kind of greater interests of the gene so this is the kind of Dawkins selfish gene idea um, now that's proved quite controversial as uh, as we explored in our uh, episode a while back on the origins of, of um, philanthropy um, but you know putting aside the details of of that kind of argument for a while it's that's sort of how that that argument developed there uh, and then in classical economics um again the altruism was sort of traditionally a very big problem and it's sort of difficult to explain within the the confines of classical mechanics and the big idea there was to try and turn pure altruism back into a sort of form of impure altruism by finding uh, additional mechanisms that could sort of explain the benefit to the donor uh, in a different way um, and this is where we get the idea of sort of impure altruism and the, the warm glow theory that particularly James Andrioni has developed but the other way um, in which uh, some have sort of sought to explain altruistic behavior in both uh, evolutionary biology and economics is through the idea of um, empathy so the idea here is that actually another explanatory mechanism is that your ability to put yourself in the position of others and understand the the impact of your actions or you know external actions on them makes you capable of modeling what that would mean to you and therefore kind of drives you to make a decision um uh, about how to to approach that and leads to sort of seemingly selfless behavior um, and then we see this kind of tested in, in neuroscience and there's a lot of evidence um, again to sort of show that this this does actually plan out, pan out. So um, I think again we've talked before about the way in which the warm glow hypothesis is backed up by evidence that when people perform altruistic acts or give to charity you can measure things like the level of dopamine and other sort of reward mechanisms in the brain but going the other way there's also a strong link um, between a different hormone uh, oxytocin uh, not oxycontin that's a totally different thing but oxytocin which is a hormone in the body that is associated um, particularly with kind of human connections so maternal links with offspring and kind of social bonds between individuals and oxytocin uh, in all sorts of different ways is uh, is linked to the idea of empathy and people have sort of tested this link when it comes to charitable giving so um, there's quite a lot of evidence that higher levels of oxytocin promote generosity so scientists uh, as is their want have done some experiments where they have artificially given people increased levels of oxytocin and measured the impact on charitable giving um and sort of wider pro-social behavior and it does have a determinate impact um and they've also measured sort of uh intermediate mechanisms that may uh lead to increased levels of oxytocin such as physical touching um so there's at least one experiment i've seen where they the the experimenters and scientists um kind of gave the control group uh massages and then looked at their behavior when playing a particular kind of economic game which was sort of based around reciprocal uh, giving and trust and those who had had a massage beforehand were more likely to give money back to somebody who had showed trust in them by giving them money in the first place now obviously you know the message from this is not that fundraisers should go out and give people massages and then they would give more to charity um, and as ever with economic experiments it's kind of you have to be careful about 
the lessons that you take from them from the real world. But the fact that oxytocin does have a sort of measurable impact and oxytocin is linked to uh, empathy kind of demonstrates that that we should probably think about the way in which empathy shapes uh, our approach to charity. Um, and then I guess sort of a related thing that we've mentioned uh, at other times on the podcast and I sort of bring up is um, that physical proximity to uh, those in need is quite a strong driving force when it comes to motivating philanthropy. So there's evidence, for instance, that people who live in uh, less economically diverse areas are less likely to give to charity or to display philanthropic behavior than wealthy people who live in more economically diverse. And essentially the the explanation for that is they simply don't see anybody in need so they're not kind of prompted to give in the same way and actually in some of the subsequent experiments um, the researchers tested this by showing people a short video of uh, of sort of outlining problems of poverty and that was enough to kind of shift the effect back the other way so that people in the economically homogeneous areas did end up giving so it sort of shows that minimal prompts to empathy can have a big uh, impact on people's um, approach to charitable giving and and I guess you know there's kind of all sorts of different ways in which this has a real world impact on uh, philanthropy uh, and civil society more broadly I mean one is that um, in general and I'm not just sort of saying this anecdotally there is evidence to back it up women do tend to display a greater ability to um uh, to to kind of act empathetically and as a result if empathy is a strong driver of charitable behavior that perhaps goes some way towards explaining why levels of engagement with charitable giving amongst women globally are consistently higher than they are amongst men uh, which is certainly the case from the CAF world giving index that we've been doing for the last 10 years or so um but I guess it also, um, you know, sort of uh, explains or gives gives a sense of the way in which approaches to fundraising might be more successful. And we'll have a bit of a think about that when we come on to the third section about the future. What it also does as well, though, I think, is raise some challenges, because I think that sort of central idea that empathy is a big driver of philanthropy sounds very positive on the face of it but when you start to think about what empathy actually means and how that plays out I think you you need to immediately sort of start to be aware that it could have some potential downsides and some of those again are things that we do see in practice so one for instance is that um, people who've looked at that link between oxytocin and, and empathy Uh, have also noticed that oxytocin is quite strongly linked to the idea of ethnocentrism. So um, again, this is the idea that people are empathetic, but only insofar as other people are kind of seen to be part of the same uh, racial group as them or sort of social group as them. Because the idea is, you know, your, your empathy extends only so far as you're able to see someone else and put yourself in their shoes and if that is sort of limited by your ability to see people from different nationalities or races or genders as similar to you then empathy only takes you so far 
Um, and that sort of goes back to that question of empathy versus sympathy. Actually, you know, in order to for charity to extend beyond the the sort of closed circle of people that I think are sufficiently like me, we have to start talking about sympathy or something else, sort of wider altruism as a driver rather than empathy. Um, and another way that you see this pan out in the context of international development, for instance, is the phenomenon of the identifiable victim bias. So this is where um, it's sort of well documented that people are much more receptive to giving when a single identifiable victim um, is kind of presented to them rather than a larger group of uh, unidentified or anonymous um, uh, people or kind of statistical evidence. Um, and, you know, that's it's sort of fine in one way because it kind of highlights the importance of human connection. But it also, you know, it's problematic if despite evidence that greater good could be done by giving to people on the basis of statistical evidence or a kind of group level, people are actually more likely to give to a single identifiable individual, even if that is kind of evidentially less effective overall. Um, and also, you know, another way in which this plays out in an international context is around the phenomenon of victim blaming. So this is where people's people's sort of subconscious biases place limits on their ability to be empathetic um not because they've kind of decided that somebody isn't worthy of their empathy but as i say because there are kind of other factors in play so if um if if people to some degree believe that those who have suffered uh, the effects of a problem are culpable in some way or sort of share in any degree of blame their likelihood of giving to them is reduced quite significantly um now you see this um in the difference between responses to perceived natural and man-made disasters so levels of giving to natural disasters so floods or you know volcanoes or hurricanes or whatever on the whole, tend to be uh, much more significant than um, situations that have been caused by war or kind of political strife. Um, and scientists who have tested this have done some interesting things in terms of the, you know, very, down to the level of the language used to explain a problem. So if you take essentially the same situation and explain it um, in language that is kind of neutral and makes no reference to, to human um, causal elements in it and um, merely makes it sound like a kind of natural act or an act of God, people are more likely to give to that. But as soon as you start mentioning things like wars or politics or governments, you see levels of giving decline. Even, again, right down to the level where exactly the same situation can be um, explained and, and merely... The introduction of the mention of some sort of man-made structure like a bridge or a dam can be enough to have a sort of statistically significant impact uh, on people's willingness to give because subconsciously there's a sense in which the donor starts to believe that even if that person obviously uh, is very much in need, they are kind of to blame for to some extent, um, even if that's merely only by being part of a country in which the the sort of the regime uh, is such that it's caused these problems um so you know that kind of 
way in which we don't understand the, the the way in which our own unconscious biases might limit our ability to be empathetic, I think is something that we need to be aware of. And it also, I think all of these examples of the downsides of empathy raise a, a much bigger issue, which we will come on to in, in the other sections, which is that empathy if we can overcome our biases, seems like quite a positive thing. Our ability to sort of put ourselves in other people's shoes and use that as a way to drive um, kind of pro-social behavior and altruistic behavior seems like a good thing. But it does exist in tension with another kind of driver that's often been put forward as as a sort of very important for philanthropy, which is which is the more rational uh, driver of kind of looking at evidence and data about where needs are and using that uh, as a basis on which to make decisions. And again, coming back to that, the kind of the oxytocin uh, and the hormone question, there was another paper I came across which looked at the fact that there was a clear inverse relationship between levels of oxytocin um, and people's likelihood of making utilitarian moral decisions. So people who exhibited lower levels of oxytocin, i.e. were kind of seemingly more uh, less empathetic, were more likely to make utilitarian decisions. So they were more likely to sort of make decisions based on how many people um, how many lives could be improved or saved as a result of a particular action, whereas people who were more empathetic and had higher levels of oxytocin were more likely to make decisions based on that and to favour uh, effects that kind of uh, were dependent on the way in which a problem had been presented or kind of, you know, the the, the needs of the few potentially outweighed the needs of the many. Um, so, you know, th- these are all sorts of ways in which I think we need to be aware that empathy whilst on the one hand a very positive force, isn't always unproblematic. Okay, in the next section, uh, I want to come on to a few different examples of the way in which a lack of empathy um, has also shaped philanthropy historically, so stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back, Uh, and in this section, as I said before the break, What I want to do is look at a few examples of where a lack of empathy or kind of more of a focus either on sympathy or rationality has been quite determinate in shaping um, philanthropy over the years. So the starting point, I think, uh, that I want to take for this is is around sort of Victorian philanthropy, because particularly in the UK, um, the Victorian era is sort of seen as the golden age of philanthropy, certainly in terms of amounts. But actually, when you look at how philanthropy was practiced, um, it was subject to quite a lot of criticism at the time and certainly after the event for you know the, the way in which philanthropy was done and the kind of moral judgments that were there. Uh, and certainly when you look at a lot of that philanthropy, it seems to be distinctly lacking in empathy and at best can seem to be uh, said to be motivated by sympathy or some other motivation. And so one example of this was the the prevalence, um, particularly amongst women, of the idea of home visitation philanthropy. So this was where a sort of model of highly engaged uh, philanthropy emerged, where middle class or kind of rich women and wives of sort of wealthy businessmen would would not just give to charity um, to kind of alleviate the suffering of the poor. They would take it upon themselves to go out either in, in ones or in groups and sort of visit the homes of the poor 
Um, but this was, you know, when you read the, the accounts of this, this was an in, incredibly sort of intrusive and, and paternalistic or maternalistic, I guess, uh, approach to philanthropy. And even if well-meaning, you know, the relationship was very awkward to these sort of middle class women sort of coming into the the homes of of those existing in poverty um as if they were you know not human themselves and often sort of passing judgment on those people and just kind of uh, wandering through their homes without so much as a as a buy your leave and obviously i mean that to me demonstrates a distinct lack of empathy um and even if you can be said to be sympathetic there to the problems those people face it, it demonstrates a kind of clear inability to put yourself in their shoes and to understand why your approach to charity or philanthropy in that case might be demeaning um an even worse example uh in a way where i don't think there was any element whatsoever of attempting to be either empathetic or sympathetic was in the phenomenon of victorian voting charities so this was a model that um that came about because people um sort of they started out as a way of trying to ensure accountability um and to sort of solve the problem of the undeserving poor of people becoming you know trying to sort of trick philanthropists into um getting donations or making donations to them when they didn't need them but the model essentially was where groups of wealthy philanthropists in these sort of clubs would have essentially evenings where they would all, you know, dress up and go and uh, drink some port and, you know, have a nice meal or whatever. And then uh, what would happen? They would have elections uh, for who should be the beneficiaries of their charity. And literally what would happen is that they would wheel out kind of poor people, uh, you know, the destitute beggars, single mothers, fallen women and this kind of thing. And then everybody would sort of vote on who should get some of their largesse. Um, just reading a, a, an extract quote here, um, it says that one hears that the walls of the London Tavern were placarded with the names of candidates, sponsors offering to exchange two idiots for a governess or three governesses for one female orphan. About it all, there was a certain excitement and appeal to the sporting instincts of the sponsors. Um, and it said, to pick a winner, to bring one's candidate through at the head of the poll was akin, in a morbid fashion, to any triumph on the track, the playing field or the stock market. So, I mean, this idea of turning philanthropy into a competitive sport is, you know, is occasionally one that you hear nowadays, the idea that you can kind of harness the competitive motion, motivation of donors. And to some extent, that's sort of, that's fine, <laughs> you know, kind of as a pragmatic approach to fundraising. But that example obviously shows that there are limits to that. And if you if your kind of inability to empathize with the the people um, that you're trying to help through your philanthropy is so great that you essentially treat them like objects or betting chips, then then that's pretty distasteful. Um, and then another way in which I think there, interestingly, this question of empathy and sympathy came up in in the con sort of historical context again around the Victorian era although it's sort of it's been a, a tension that's that's bubbled along for for much longer than that is around the idea of telescopic philanthropy so this is a sort of criticism leveled at philanthropists throughout the ages that often rather than focusing on the immediate needs of those around them what they've instead chosen to do is to kind of focus on the needs and priorities of those in faraway lands um you know often who have very severe needs and and that's sort of you know totally 
uh, not up for dispute. But often it was kind of linked to um, the missionary movement and to sort of religious zeal for conversion. And the criticism uh, around this was that um, essentially it was kind of it was an easy way out because you could have sympathy for those whose lives are in no way similar to your own because it was too difficult to have empathy for those who, you know, if you thought about it too hard, were very similar to you or at least should be. And it kind of highlighted the the inequality or imbalance within your own society. Um, so just there, I'm just going to read quickly from a poem from the satirical magazine John Bull, um, which was reproduced in the uh, the Times. Sorry, excuse that noise. That's just me flapping around with the uh, pages of my own book, uh, in which this quote uh, appears. Um, but the this poem, um, uh, yeah. It, so the the second verse of it goes. It's all about. It's called an ode to modern philanthropy, and it's uh, sort of deeply. Uh, Sung, satirical sort of sung in tongue-in-cheek uh, uh, poem but it says your thoroughbred philanthropists can glance their pitying eyes over the earth's expanse till sorrow all their bosoms discomposes for their black brethren sold to whips and chains and not a single sympathy remain for starving whites who die beneath their noses um, and again, you know, there's this same uh, criticism was leveled at John D. Rockefeller in, in the US who kind of put, you know, did a lot of work in the US, but also put enormous amounts of money into kind of overseas missions. Um, and so you can see, you know, again, the kind of the the interplay between uh, philanthropy and sympathy has been problematic. And that other interplay that we've already identified as, identified as being important between empathy uh, as a driver and rationality. Um, it has also been a kind of huge shaping force in the history of philanthropy. So we've, I'm sure, talked before on the podcast about the charity organization society movement um, and the scientific charity movement of the early 20th century in America. Now, now both of these, the charity organization societies in Victorian England and uh, and the scientific movement in the early 20th century in the US, were kind of attempts to try and impose a form of rationality on charitable giving and philanthropy, essentially to try and purge what was seen as the uh, the the fundamental problem of indiscriminate charity. So the idea here was that a lot of philanthropists were essentially undermining any of the good that they could have been doing through their giving by not being picky enough in terms of who they gave to and that they were indiscriminately giving to people who should be seen as the undeserving poor so people who were kind of it was their own fault that they were poor uh, and the deserving poor so those people who were sort of blameless and the the right and proper objects of charity uh, and in both these cases they they kind of employed scientific or in some cases sort of quasi scientific methods to to try and make the selection process more rigorous and, and overcome this idea that uh, charity is is kind of indiscriminate. And that is an idea that has never really gone away. So even today, we see um, the, the kind of success and, and growth of the idea of effective altruism, which I'm not saying is, you know, the same as the Charity Organisation Society, but that essential idea that we should, as far as possible, do away with empathy or our own personal empathy as a driver for charitable behaviour and take ourselves out of the picture and instead apply rational principles when it comes to selecting 
the causes, groups and individuals that we give to is is largely the same. I mean, in the case of effective altruism, it's taken one step further because we're supposed to take ourselves as the donor out of the picture to such an extent that we are agnostic about even the cause that we give to. And instead, we're, we're meant to take an entirely utilitarian approach to simply allocating our available resources to do the most good in the world uh, with them in terms of kind of some measure like improvements of quality adjusted life years and things like this and you know I think we've talked on the podcast before and I, I have elsewhere about the way in which I think that this sort of utilitarian view of philanthropy is maybe a little bit limiting but I think you know it is a very interesting question and I'd quite like to come back and do a sort of full episode on effective altruism in the not too distant future um but speaking of the future there, that kind of tees us up for um, for the third section, which I want to take some of these sort of historical trends and some of the problems with empathy that we've already seen in this tension between empathy and rationality and just have a think about where it might go in the future. So stay tuned for that. Okay, so we're back. And then in this last section, hopefully um, slightly more concisely than I've managed to do so far, what I want to do is just have a bit of a think about where the future might take us uh, in terms of this relationship between empathy and philanthropy. And particularly just to f- give a couple of thoughts about the way in which developments in technology could take us in a number of different directions. So the first one is whether technology could be used as a sort of powerful force for driving even more empathy amongst donors and thereby kind of harnessing that um, as a motivation for giving. So the particular technology I have in mind here is virtual reality, um, because I guess that is sort of experiential technology. um, And it's sort of seen, you know, amongst a lot of people as a kind of empathy machine. So, you know, if, if VR plays out in the way that um, we can all imagine from sort of having read the books and seen the films that it could do, um, obviously, the ability to literally sort of put yourself in another person's shoes would be uh, particularly powerful and compelling. Um, and we're already seeing it being used um, for sort of precisely that reason in the charity and nonprofit space. So there's quite a few examples of charities using VR um, and sort of 360 video to some extent um, for fundraising. So to try and kind of give people an emotional sense of the problems they're trying to address and therefore get them to give more money. So Charity Water, for instance, um, has a sort of famous uh, video that it that it has. Um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, although I might edit that back in. Um, but it's essentially it's a VR film about a young girl, a day in the life of a young girl going out um, to try and gather water in Eritrea, I think, or somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and the sort of challenges that she faces in doing that. And they, they show this to potential donors you know at kind of big gala dinners and, and other places as a way of kind of uh trying to get people to to engage more and, and give more donations um but there's also quite a few interesting examples of where charities and, and others are using vr to kind of get people to engage and empathize but without an immediate fundraising ask so examples like alzheimer's uh research uk did um uh, a VR experience called a walk through dementia where you could sort of put on a 
uh, VR headset or just like a cheap uh, Google Cardboard headset using your phone. Um, and it would kind of give you a sense of what life was like for somebody with dementia and the sort of challenges they face. And similarly, the National Autistic Society um, had uh, another VR experience um, where they um, uh, gave an, an idea of what the kind of sensory overload during a normal day would be like for a person with autism. And as I say, neither of these was particularly linked to kind of a straightforward fundraising ask, but obviously the idea is to get people to kind of put themselves in the shoes of the people uh, who are kind of suffering from those conditions, if that's the right term, or that those charities are working with. And, you know, the hope one would think would be that, you know, in the longer term that they would would engage more. And and there is some interesting evidence about the power of virtual reality to to kind of drive empathy. So there was a report I saw recently, a paper, um, where they looked at the way in which VR was able to um, to drive empathy and kind of gave people a, a VR experience of homelessness, I think it was, and measured their um, their sort of levels of self-reported empathy. And against a baseline of people who had no information, there was a significant impact. So, you know, that's good. Interestingly, when measured against uh, kind of more traditional forms of communication that were similarly um, able to kind of put position people in somebody else's shoes, so a sort of first-person narrative piece of written content or whatever, there wasn't a significant difference. So the VR wasn't actually innately better than that. But what the researchers found was that the the impact of the VR experience uh, stayed for longer. So actually donors who'd been given the VR experience of homelessness as opposed to those who had been given written material trying to kind of explain the same thing would demonstrate empathy for quite a lot longer so if you came back to them uh, subsequently their levels of giving uh, sort of pro-social behavior would be higher than those who just seen the written material which you know i think is quite an interesting finding then on the negative side i think you know that's kind of tech driving empathy great vr can do that but I think there's, you know, just as much chance that tech could have a negative impact um, on our ability to demonstrate empathy for others. Um, so what I'm thinking of here is the fact that we're already aware of the kind of phenomenon of online filter bubbles or the fact we exist in social silos. And that's kind of partly just a sort of self-selecting problem of, you know, the way in which we choose to spend time with people who um, kind of share similar views with us or are in similar social classes and that sort of thing, and that that is exacerbated online. But also, I think we're increasingly aware that the the algorithms, the recommendation algorithms and the sort of content algorithms that underpin online content and sort of online social media and our experience of the online world, they they exacerbate those problems and they make them much worse. So they kind of lock us into these ever more airtight social silos that it's very difficult to break out of and and that is leading to a lot of problems about people developing more extreme points of view online uh, and also the kind of inability of people to see the point of view of those who perhaps you know come at issues from a from a different perspective um and you know linked to that i think um the the question of the i mean sort of offline question really that the the lack of um, physical public spaces in which people come together, a kind of 
bowling alone idea that Robert Putnam put forward that you know the the decline of sort of associational life in America was due to the the loss of social capital because people just didn't kind of uh, talk to each other over the the fence and uh, didn't kind of engage around community involvement and that sort of thing you know I think that at the same time uh, is is the flip side of this as we spend sort of more and more time interacting online in environments where it's very easy to get locked into filter bubbles that also you know it's problematic in itself but it also takes away from any time that we might spend offline in situations that might bring us more into contact with people from other walks of life and therefore kind of develop uh, bridging social capital, you know, uh, social capital that kind of cuts across um, demographic groups and income levels and that sort of thing, rather than just within groups of people who are already similar. And I think this this problem, particularly of kind of online filtering and social siloing, is is likely to get worse in the future um and that's partly because we just sort of spend more of and more of our lives online but also i think there are the way in which we access technology and the interfaces we use are going to become a problem here so i'm thinking particularly of the fact that you know there's a lot of projections that our use of um conversational uh, artificial intelligence and conversational interfaces like Alexa and Siri and these sorts of things is going to go up enormously uh, over the next few years and we might also see the emergence of kind of augmented realities and things so we'll start wearing uh, you know the equivalent of Google glasses but ones that don't look stupid um, and in each of those cases the the important thing is that they don't offer an objective view of reality or the the whole of the content available to us they are all curated or that there is a platform or a tech company or someone acting as a gatekeeper so it is filtering our experience and if the algorithms underpinning that filtering are set such that they merely kind of reinforce our existing biases or keep content or points of view away from us that are problematic or that we're unlikely to find very pleasant which they probably would because they won't it's unlikely they'll be incentivized to give us things that we don't like then that is going to mean that we are our experience is even more filtered uh, and sort of tailored and we're all essentially kind of existing in our own digital bubbles of one sort or another and the likelihood of coming into contact with other people and people from different walks of life is is reduced and I think that would be a big problem for charity and philanthropy because that slightly awkward rubbing up against the the kind of the ways in which other people live or the problems in society is one of the kind of key starting points for somebody feeling motivated to do something and engaging with charity. So, you know, to take a hypothetical scenario, imagine for a moment that um, you were wearing a kind of augmented reality display uh, and you wanted to uh head out to a restaurant for the evening well the, you know the, the the augmented reality display you could ask it to give you recommendations for a restaurant and it would um they would probably be biased in some way because somebody had paid for for their um uh, the establishment to kind of come higher up the rankings on the on the recommendation algorithm but that's sort of by the by but also if if that um the algorithm underpinning it sort of was tailored so that it was supposed to make your uh, experience as pleasurable as possible it's perfectly possible that what it would do was potentially take you on a route that avoided areas in which for instance there might be large numbers of homeless people or sort of the you know the algorithm was aware that there was something that you would find kind of distressing or awkward and so it would kind of 
mollycoddle you or put you in in cotton wool and without you potentially even knowing it would sort of mediate your experience in a way that meant that you never had the sort of necessary experiences to drive um to sort of drive you to get involved uh, in philanthropy and that would be a huge problem i think um and then the other way i think in which technology um is likely to have a big bearing on this goes back to that question of rationality versus empathy and this sort of picks up on what we've already been saying about virtual reality um, in terms of that being a technology that can drive the empathy side of things but then as we've explored before on the podcast there's also the possibility in many different ways of using um, artificial intelligence and big data and you know blockchain smart contracts potentially to drive a kind of hyper rational model of philanthropy that essentially kind of takes the human out of the the picture as much as possible and makes makes it so that the decisions we're making about allocating philanthropic resources are truly rational and potentially done at a scale and speed that was never possible before and you know it will be interesting to see which one of these tensions wins out or whether we kind of we whether there is a divergence between approaches to fundraising between those that sort of seek to appeal to our visceral empathetic desire to give and those that try to appeal to our rational self or whether people find hybrid models that kind of make the connection using uh, some of that uh, empathetic technology but then trying to back that up uh, with sort of more rational data-driven philanthropic approaches and i'll just leave you with um, a recommendation for a short story that i came across recently um so it's in a collection of short stories published uh, every year by the MIT Technology Review called 12 Tomorrows. And in this year's um, uh, version of that book in the edition, um, there's a great story by a very good uh, sci-fi author called Ken Liu, um, who's won the Nebula and Hugo Awards and things like that. But he wrote a story called Byzantine Empathy, um, which sort of envisions a future. Um, uh, it's largely sort of based around kind of blockchain technology and, and what the potential for that could be to disrupt charitable giving. But where he gets to, which is really interesting, is imagining precisely the sort of situation that I'm talking about, which is where a, a, a network has been developed um, for kind of uh, rewarding people for... Uh, engaging with charitable giving but it's kind of blockchain plus vr so um people are able to to kind of uh use use the blockchain to uh highlight social problems or projects but there's a division on that between whether people kind of use um virtual reality to try and drive a kind of emotive visceral response or whether they try and use rationality um and it's kind of interesting uh the way that that story plays out it's you know i i firmly believe that fiction and storytelling is is one of the best ways of kind of getting to grips with some of the sort of potential challenges of the future so i would thoroughly recommend it and i'll put a link um up to a free version that's just been published uh on the internet actually uh of that story if you are interested in having a look at that um so it kind of brings us to the end in the in the far future there with blockchain and VR and uh, and uh, kind of the tension between that and, and AI driven philanthropy. But you know, I think where where we get back to is that empathy and the idea that we can put ourselves in the shoes of others is a big motivating factor in philanthropy, and it's a sort of powerful 
force for getting people to engage. But it certainly has its limits, both in the fact that it sort of definitionally requires us to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of others and our ability to do that is limited either because of unconscious biases or because of uh, you know our kind of conscious desire to limit that but increasingly it's also being undermined by uh, technology so the fact that we are sort of limiting our experience or having our experience limited for us by the way that we interact online is is a problem uh, for our ability to show empathy towards others and may impact our ability to give in the future and it's possible that you know there will be technological solutions to to improving that situation and kind of um, driving more empathy amongst people and using that as a, a way of developing giving but it, it's it's again it's not one of those things that's a sort of simple binary choice I don't think I think empathy is a powerful motivating factor but it has to sit in balance with a desire for kind of evidence um, and you know data and kind of making rational decisions and again I don't think that you need to go fully to the end the other end of that spectrum but I guess you know the the lesson from history is that where giving has been entirely indiscriminate people have sort of taken issue with philanthropy and seen it as failing um, but then on the other hand where people have tried to make uh, giving entirely rational people have sort of seen it as squeezing the life out of what it is that that makes uh, philanthropy good in the first place so somewhere in the middle there's probably a happy medium and on that note uh, I will call a halt to things and um, so it only remains to say uh, that I will put links to various relevant things in the show notes as ever um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, um, then uh, drop me a line at givingthought@cafonline.org if you've got ideas for things that we could talk about in future episodes or people I could interview. Um, if you like this kind of thing, um, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, and I'll see you next time. Bye!